That brings us to the final section of the book of Acts. This is Paul's journey to Rome, chapter 27, verse 1, through chapter 28, verse 31. In this section, Paul finally makes it to Rome in order to preach the gospel as Yahweh had promised him in 60 AD. The, so remember, Jesus died somewhere around 34 AD, around there. So this is about 30 years since Jesus first was raised from the dead and the Christianity and the, well, the gospel became fully clear to everyone of what was implied. And around 34, 35 AD is when the Holy Spirit dwelled everybody. And so this is when everybody was very clear of what the gospel truly was at this point. And so less than 30 years later, in 60 AD, Paul has now going to be sent off to the furthest parts of the world, like Acts 1-8 had said. The opposition moves from that of the Jews to the nature of trying to destroy Paul and his crew, as in many famous Greek stories such as Homer's Odyssey. Yet once again, the providence prevails and the gospel moves on through the world. So now we're moving from the political maneuverings of the Jews trying to destroy G Paul and the gospel to nature itself is going to try to destroy it. Now you need to understand this is significant because the thing that was considered the greatest source of chaos in the ancient world was the sea. All throughout the First Testament, every single time the sea is portrayed, it's a metaphor for absolute disorder and chaos. Everything that threatens the order of God's good creation. Everything that threatens to make things fall apart. To undo the morning and to bring it back into evening and darkness and that kind of stuff. Chaos is the constant theme here. By the time we start getting into the, the prophets, the idea of the raging sea not only becomes symbolic of just chaos in the world of general, but of humans themselves. Because humans are the second most chaotic things in all the universe. And so you have the disorder of the universe falling in disorder because of this fall of sin and humanity. And God is the only thing that can bring light and order and, eat and, and mourning to everything. But then you also have humans who are the, 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 the source of all this disorder and chaos. This is why the beast and Daniel come up out of the sea. Because not only are they coming out of the sea representing chaos, but the sea are humans. Because the beasts are really humans. That's the point that Daniel is making. But when they cease to act like humans, the image of God, they become beasts. They become animals in their political power and corruption. And so what God is doing now, what Luke is doing, is he's taking these two images of chaos, the sea and humans, and he is showing them as directly opposing the gospel. Chaos through humans and chaos through the fallen nature of creation are threatening the gospel and everything that God created, just like they always have been throughout the First Testament. Yet this is why Jesus walked on the water in the middle of the storm. Because what he was saying is that only God can control the chaos. That has been the message from the very beginning of the Bible. And when Jesus walks on the water, this is his first and most blatant physical acts other than healing the man who was lowered through the roof but, but really truly raw power greatest examples of I am God because not only can I walk above the chaos but I can still the chaos 
And that is why the, for the first time ever, the disciples bowed down and said, who is this that he can calm even the storm? Because only God could do that. Not even any of the prophets with the power of God working through them were ever able to do that. And so now, with the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus going out, we have the chaos of humans and the chaos of nature threatening undo it. And yet God, once again, is going to walk on the sea, so to speak. And he has subdued the human sea of chaos. And he's about ready to subdue the nature of chaos. Meaning nothing in creation and no human can disrupt this, undo it, or stop it. Because nothing can stop the word of God. And that is the analogy or the image or the metaphor that Luke is using here in these two sections as we wrap up the end of Acts. This also plays into the Roman way of thinking. That's, that right there is very, very Jewish, what I went through. The idea of the sea and the chaos and humans and that kind of stuff. But this also plays into the Roman idea of thinking because even the Romans had this concept. You had to realize everybody in the ancient world believed that the sea was an image of chaos. In fact, there are cave drawings that we have found and, and drawings on mosaic walls where humans are literally have spears and they're stabbing the sea and trying to kill it. Now, what it's not saying is, look at these crazy, insane people who should have been committed to a mental institution. They actually think they can kill the sea. It was all metaphorical, right? Even Sleeping Beauty is not really about a prince going out and conquering a dragon in order to rescue the princess. These are all metaphorical ideas of what a man has to do to get his life in order to do chaos in order to have a peaceful home and a stable family and life, that kind of stuff. All these ideas are metaphorical ideas. The parables are all metaphors of what life is truly like and that kind of stuff. Pilgrim's Progress is probably the most famous modern-day European-American imagery of metaphors and allegories and parables about nothing is really what it seems to be on paper, but it's all metaphor or something else. They were metaphorically showing this is, they're against the chaos. They're trying to subdue it. And it, you can go through thousands of things in the ancient world from every culture where you see this idea. The greatest imagery for the Jews, obviously, are the, is the Bible. And God showing up and calming the storm and destroying enemies and judges with the sea and the rivers and that kind of stuff and the prophets and that kind of stuff. But the greatest story for the Greeks would be Homer's Odyssey. And there, once again, you have Odysseus trying to get home. And yet, what is the thing that threatens him? The sea. And it turns a journey into a 10-year journey back home to get to his wife, Penelope, and his son, Telemachus. This whole journey is there. Now you have to understand, the Romans would think, right, Poseidon is angry with Odysseus. Not going to go through the whole story, but Odysseus basically does something, blinds his son, the Cyclops, that kind of stuff. Poseidon is the sea god. He gets angry with him, and he basically sends this sea and all these other things in order to make sure that Odysseus never gets home. Now there's another idea going on, but that's another story, so I won't go there. So he tries to get home. It's the anger of the gods against Odysseus's offense that brings the judgment of the sea upon him. Every Roman, every Greek would understand that if you are trapped in a sea storm and it's threatening to kill you and you even die in it, you've been judged by the gods. But they also would view a miraculous escape from the sea 
would be that God's acquitting you and approving you. This is how they viewed it. So in some sense, Paul's going to go in the storm, and everybody reading this, every Greek reading this, would be like, oh, there you go. Festus, Felix, Grippo, they were all wrong. The gods are against them. But the fact that you miraculously come out of this would mean even your gods know that Paul's not guilty of anything, which will give the gospel even more weight. Luke is going to use, well, more specifically, God's going to do this, but then Luke is going to record it, the idea of the storm to not even speak, not only to speak to the Jews that nothing can stop the word of God and to emphasize the power of Yahweh over the gospel and over Paul and justifying and vindicating him, but he's also going to use the storm in order to say to the Gentiles, even your gods are allowing the gospel to come to Rome. And when we get done with Acts, that means that there is literally no argument that you can levy against the gospel in a Jewish Gentile way of thinking at this time period. Chapter 27, verse 1. It's this, this, at this point that the we section picks up again. Now, we talked about this earlier, but this is technically considered the third we section, and it'll stay almost to the very end, all through this chapter and into chapter 28 towards the end. But technically, it's not really, because remember, we made the point that the only reason the we went away back in chapter 26 is because Luke is not actively participating in everything because he's a passive observer of the trials that are happening. The we is not like... I've come back. <laughs> the we is more like I am now actively involved in it now because now I can actually come to my friend and hang out with him because he's in a very, very loose, more of an escort kind of a arrest than a you are a bad person, we're afraid you're going to escape kind of arrest. So chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided we would sail to Italy, they handed over Paul and some other prisoners to the centurion of Augustan cohort named Julius. We went on board a ship from Adramatai that was about to sail to various ports along the coast of the province of Asia, but out to sea accompanied by Aristocras, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The ship has made its circuit from the western coast of the Mediterranean and it has come probably most likely down to Egypt and it's, it's a grain ship. We're going to learn later it's a grain ship. And it's going to pick them up and carry them back to Rome as it brings a shipment back to Rome. So they're going to get on the boat in Caesarea and then they're going to sail on the ocean up the coast of Israel to Sidon where they're going to pick up some other people, and then they're going to start making their way to Rome. And you can see this in the map of the, the journey here. So I'm not going to go a lot of details of the journey because the visuals are way better. At this point, Julius, a Roman soldier of a cohort, takes over and becomes in charge of Paul and many other prisoners. Paul is not the only prisoner. Everything that we see here, Luke portrays Julius in a very favorable light. He's portrayed as listening and understanding, as supportive of Paul. Doesn't always agree or do what Paul thinks should be done, but there's no malice or hostility from him towards Paul in any kind of way, and Luke does not portray him in any kind of negative or novice or even corrupt or evil kind of a way. Verse 3, 
The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius, treating Paul kindly, allowed him to go to his friends so that they could provide him with a what he needed. From there we put out to the sea and sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And after we had sailed against the open sea off of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we put out to Myra and Lycia, and there the centurion found a ship from Alexandria sailing for Italy, and he put also on board. So now we're on the technical grain ship. This ship is a grain ship. It would have contained anywhere between, it could, it could contain at max 276 passengers. So this is, that's a lot of people. Now it's a grain ship, which means its primary purpose is to ship grain from Egypt to Italy. Egypt was the primary provider of grain and bread to Italy. And of course, Italy being the wealthiest country in the entire part of this world, because it's the heart of the Roman Empire, was also the greatest consumer of grain in the Roman Empire. Just like America consumes way more of the world's resources than any other country in the world does because of our wealth and our greed and indulgence. It's primary grain ship. Grain ships were known to sometimes not make it all the way to Italy. There was no guarantee. You want to get as much grain on that ship as you possibly can, yet it still can hold on top of that 276 passengers. It was 80, 180 feet long, 50 feet wide, and 44 feet deep from the deck to the hold. Not from the mass, but from the deck itself down into the hold. 44 feet is a little more than four-story building. So that's where the grain would be mostly kept. A few obviously sleeping and arrangements under deck and that kind of stuff. So this is a large ship. So when we say the storm is going to threaten the ship, that's serious. That's serious. We sailed slowly for many days and arrived with difficulty off of Snidus because the wind prevented us from going any further and we sailed into the lee of the Crete off of Salona. With difficulty we sailed along the coast of Crete and came to the place called Fair Havens that was near the town of Lacia. It is now the Day of Atonement. It's in the season of the Day of Atonement. This is around September or early October. September or early October is when they set out to sail. People considered it extremely dangerous to sail between mid-September and November. So basically, you couldn't pick a worse time. This is, this is literally the last grain shipment of the season. It's the last chance to get Paul on a ship towards Caesar. They must feel some kind of desperation of doing it now and getting it done because they're sailing in the most dangerous part. Now, it's not unheard of for a ship to make it during the season, but it's also not unheard of for there to be drastic storms that will just come out of the middle of nowhere, threaten to destroy things. Um, the winds are more chaotic. The rains are more intense. Hurricanes start becoming more numerous. You couldn't have picked a worse time to basically set out. All the harbors are beginning to close for the winter. In fact, the harbors are probably closed at this point going into mid-February. But the problem with Fair Havens, so they make all their way, and they make their way sailing. They go up to the northern coast, or they go up to the southern coast of what we know as modern-day Turkey, and they hit some things there, and then they begin to make their way down to Crete. 
Now, the idea is that the winds begin to drive them there. That's not where they wanted to go. Nobody really wants to go to Crete when you're just trying to get to Rome with a grain shipment. There's no benefit there. It's not really made to handle large ships coming in for large transportations and that kind of stuff. And so the winds begin to drive them southward, constantly pushing them southward until they hit the island of Crete. Fairhavens is what they ended up at, which is kind of ironic because it's not faring well for them. And it was not enough of a haven for a good-sized ship. So this this haven, this harbor, can't handle this size of a ship. It doesn't have the structure to protect it from the hurricanes that are going to come through so the ship can survive and the grains can survive through winter. So there's a debate right now of whether they should stay here and winter it out and hope that this harbor will protect them, which they know it won't, or to keep going and risk it and make it all the way to Rome. The captain of the ship basically says, this harbor is not going to protect us. We stand a better chance of heading out to Rome and getting there within a, a few days or whatever, rather than spending a couple months here and getting beaten by hurricanes over and over and over again. This is the decision that he's going to make. They could technically winter in Fairhavens. It doesn't really have the harbor to support them, but there would be means and supplies in Fairhavens to take care of them and protect them and keep them alive, even though there is a good possibility that they might lose their ship. Or they decide that Phoenix, which is a little further around the island, would be a better place for them where the ship would have a better idea. That's what they do. Verse 9. Since considerable time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because the fast was already over. And Paul advised them, Men, I can see the voyage is going to end in disaster. He's got a prophecy now that's going to end in disaster. And great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more convinced by the captain and the ship's owner than by the Paul when what he said. So Paul has a prophecy from God and says, I know that logistically speaking, and in all of your experience as sailors, this harbor is not suitable for protecting the ship. But we're all going to die if we keep sailing. It's not going to end well. We must stay here. So he prophesies from God that we should stay here in order to preserve the lives of everybody. He doesn't say anything about God preserving the ship. But he does say everybody knows that if we stay here, we'll all survive. The coast is big enough to take care of us. However, the captain has got a huge financial load of grain in his hull. And this could be a huge ding against his reputation and higher ability if he loses it all, which he knows will most likely happen here in Fairhavens, but has a chance of not happening if he goes on to Phoenix. So he decides to go to Phoenix. Now Julius, not really knowing Paul, not really, really believing much in Yahweh prophecies, naturally in a humanistic kind of a sense would say, well, I'm going to take the advice of a sailor over some guy who is not a sailor. And that, remember, all throughout the Bible, the Jews are never known for sailing. Even the Pharisees, are, are sorry, the, the disciples are briefly mentioned in the Sea of Galilee, but that's not nearly the same. Yes, there's some bad storms there, but that's not the same as going out in the ocean. So they take his word and they go with what the captain says. Verse 12, because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. They hoped 
that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought that they could carry out their purpose, so they wait, um, waited an anchor, um, that's that term that we don't know exactly what it means, and sailed close along the coast of Crete. Not long after this, a hurricane force wind called the Northeaster blew down from the island. And when the ship was caught in it and could not head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. As we ran under the lee of a small island called Kata, we were able to, with difficulty to get the ship's boat under control. On their way there, the lifeboat that is trailing behind them is taking on water. So they would tie a lifeboat behind this large ship. They didn't like haul them up necessarily like they do today. And they would like tie it to a rope, kind of like a little dinghy, and they would haul it behind them. At this point, they did say they need to pull the lifeboat in and put it on the ship. Now, that's not ideal. But it must be taking on so much water and the hurricane and the storm that it's becoming an anchor and drawing them down and slowing them down. And so having on the ship is better than dra dragging a giant buck of water, bucket of water behind you. After the crew had hoisted it aboard the lifeboat, the dinghy, they used supports to under undergird the ship. Fearing that they could run aground on the citrus or the strait, they lowered the sea anchor, thus letting themselves be driven along. Then they start frapping. Frapping is where you take the ropes and you would throw them under the hull for the best of what we can figure out, under the water with some kind of weight system or whatever, and then tie it up in order to strengthen the hull even more from the waves that are beating against the wood and that kind of stuff. The word of sea anchors or gear. We're not really clear what this word means. This word is a, a, not an actual technical term that refers to a very specific things, but seems to be a catch-all for pretty much anything that you would use for sailing on the ship, the mast or an actual anchor or some kind of tacking material or whatever. So we're not ex completely sure of what this is. They begin to believe. They begin to be driven southward. Okay, they've already been with the winds have already pushed them southward towards Crete. And now the hurricane comes up to the point that they can't control the ship anymore. And their only hope is to drop an anchor and try to move the anchor around and, and just hopefully prevent themselves from being completely taken off course. If the, that the winds have to dry them, at least it's to drive an anchor being drugged through the water as well. It'll slow down what the winds could do. And it begins to move them southward. Now you can... now. Verse 18, the next day, because we were violently battered by the storm, they began throwing the cargo overboard. Now, that's a big deal when you start throwing all your grain overboard. That's like basically burning the $100 bills, okay, in order to stay alive. They threw the ship's car gear overboard with their own hands, and when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and a violent storm continued to batter us, we finally abandoned all hope of being saved. At this point in the ocean, on the map, you can see the wavy lines. We have no idea where they are in the ocean at this point. They don't know where they are. So from Crete all the way to Malta, that line is not technically accurate. We don't really know where they are at this point. But what we do know is professional sailors who sail the Mediterranean over and over and over again, they're being driven southward so much 
that they're actually afraid that they're ready to slam into the northern coast of Africa. They're not going to actually slam into the coast. Africa, this part of Cyrenica, has these sandbars that go really far out into the Mediterranean. But a large ship that's 45 feet underneath the water, well, more like 35 probably, under, or 30, 35 or 40 feet underneath the water, you, you guys know, like, the sandbars don't have to be that deep in order for you to hit that and run aground. And once you hit that, you're, there's no getting out of it, especially when the wind drives you into the sandbar. How close they are? Probably not as close as what they think. But at the same time, they're the professional sailors that do this all the time. And, but they're also in the chaos and the darkness and the storm. But all they know is that they feel like they're being driven south and south and south. And if they hit south too far, they're, they're doomed. There's no getting out of this. So they're freaking out because if the land grabs them, they're doomed. Now they're in Africa. That's not a good place to be in the northern part. And, not, and, it's, and it's, they're still in Roman control. But if they start heading into Cyrenica and that part, then you're out of the, the Roman the government, the Roman Empire and that kind of stuff. They're afraid. And they're dropping the anchor, they're, they're, they're frapping the bottom of the ship, they're doing everything to keep themselves from being driven all the way down into the coast. It's bad. When sailors abandon hope of surviving, it's bad. Now, when they throw the cargo overboard, they don't throw all. Later, they'll be able to eat some of the grain, and so the implication is they're not throwing all overboard completely, but most likely they're throwing stuff overboard, that wasn't enough, let's throw some more. They're trying desperately not to throw it all overboard, so they're just doing a little bit at a time, beginning to fear. But at this point, they're realizing nothing's making a difference in any kind of a way. Verse 21, Since many of them had no desire to eat, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set out for sea from Crete, thus avoiding this damage and the loss. Paul is human, and they're about ready to die because they didn't listen to him. So there could be a little bit of a, I told you so. But it could be a little bit of a, I told you so, I was right. But they're also probably most likely knowing Paul. Paul cares about people. Paul really cares about people. He wouldn't be risking his life constantly and being beaten with a lictor's rod and, and driving us if he didn't really care about people. Yes, it's there, but it's probably more likely not just say, I told you so, you should all listen to me, maybe next time. It's also probably a lot of, uh, look, I was right. So what I'm about ready to prophesy next from God, pay attention, has less to do with an arrogant entitlement kind of a thing and more to do, don't ignore the prophecy of God a second time. That's kind of the idea here. Remember I told you this would happen because Yahweh told me. Now Yahweh told me another thing. Verse 22, now I advise you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship will be lost. For last night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, came to me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and go, and God graciously granted you the safety of all who are sailing with you. Therefore keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God, and it will be just as I have been told. But we must run around on some island, run aground on some island. So Paul is saying, God told me, we will all survive. 
But we have to sacrifice the ship. We have to sacrifice your material gain. We have to sacrifice your profit. We have to sacrifice your business in order to survive this. And later it's going to be told that, and we all have to be together. It's all or nothing. That's the prophecy. We will all survive. When the 14th night had come, while we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were approaching some land. Now, the Adriatic Sea is not what we think of as the Adriatic Sea today. The Adriatic Sea, the way that we use it, is a technical term to refer to a very specific part in the water of the Mediterranean. This is more of what they would use as a generic term to refer to the western part of the Mediterranean and what we know today as the Ionian Sea. So it's more of like that western part of the Mediterranean rather than that very specific modern-day European-American label that we've put on a map kind of a thing. When they, about midnight, they suspected they were approaching some land. Now you say, wait a minute, they can't see anything. They can't see the certain moon and the stars. And it's midnight, which is even the darkest point there. How do they know they're approaching land? They probably smelled it. Sailors actually can smell the land. They can smell the difference between the land and they can smell the difference between the sea. And these experienced sailors would probably be able to smell it as they're getting closer and closer. And so that probably is what's going on here. They took the surroundings. They took soundings and found the water was 20 fathoms deep. And when they had sailed a little further, they took soundings again and found that it was 15 fathoms deep. And because they were afraid that they would run aground on the rocky coast, they threw out four anchors from the stern and wished for the day to appear. Now, soundings is basically where they would have a rope with a weight on the end of it, like a plumb in construction. But the bottom of the weight was hollowed out, and they would fill it with a grease, a really thick grease. And what they would do is they would know how long the rope was and what represented distance, and they would mark it, and they would drop this thing down until they felt that it hit bottom, or if they couldn't feel it, and they would bring it up. And the grease would pick up debris from the bottom of the ocean or the sea. And so when they pick up, they, they felt it hit, and they pick up debris, they can then bring it up, and then, then of course, where the water line was on the rope, that was their way of being able to determine how deep it is. So obviously they're getting closer to land because they keep taking greetings. Now this land that they don't know what it is yet, but it's Malta. They'll figure it out later that they're at Malta. So they've actually gotten closer to Rome than what they had feared. They probably maybe at this point think that it's Africa. Um, but luckily they'll find out that it's actually Malta. They begin to take these soundings and they determine it's getting closer. And then they begin to realize they're going to go aground. So they threw out anchors in order to slow this down at the stern and wish for the day to appear. Then with the sailors tried then when the sailors tried to escape from the ship and were lowering the ship's boat into the sea, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be safe. Then the soldiers cut the ropes of the ships and the boat of the ship's boat and let it adrift. So the sailors at this point are like, forget all of you. I don't care about your Roman soldiers. We don't care about your prisoners. We don't care about the, anything. We're going to jump ship on the life dinghy or the boat and get off. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. And Roman centurion's like, you don't mess with Rome. And he just starts cutting ropes so that they can't escape. So at this point, Julius now is like, okay, Paul, 
was right the first time. The sailors were wrong the first time. The sailors are now abandoning us. He's begun to obviously at this point gain respect for Paul. Maybe Paul's been sharing the gospel. Most likely he has during this time period. And so he takes the word of Paul and says, I'm not going to make that mistake again. Verse 33, as the day was about to draw dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been in suspense and have gone without food. You have eaten nothing. Now this shows you how serious the storm is, that they haven't been able to eat for multiple days because they're so busy just trying to stay alive in the middle of this hurricane. Paul basically says, you need to eat some of the bread now. I tell you right now that the storm will allow you to eat the bread. And it'll allow you to eat enough because you need all the strength you can to, s- to swim and survive this shipwrecking. Now, it's not technically like when I was growing up as a kid in the little like graphic novel books of the Bible and that kind of stuff. Paul's like in the middle of this great big ocean, like just holding on to this like piece of wood shipwreck. It's not a shipwreck like that. It's a shipwreck that we've run aground and it's going to be a swim, but we know the land is there. But in the middle of a storm, it doesn't mean it's going to be a safe swim, and there's still a chance you can drown kind of a thing. But it's not like blow the whistle and hope somebody hears you kind of a thing either. So he says, you must eat. Um, Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for this is important for your survival. For not one of you will lose a hair on his head. Probably not totally literal, metaphorical. After he said this... Paul took bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all and broke it and began to eat. So all of them were unencouraged and took food themselves. And we were and we were in all the 276 persons on the ship. And when they had eaten enough to be st- satisfied, they lightened the ship by throwing the wheat into the sea. So there's a lot of people on this ship. And Paul is guaranteeing that they will all survive. The higher number of people on the ship the greater that promise and guarantee becomes because the percentage is much higher for them to not be able to survive. When day came, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So they slipped the anchors and left them in the sea and at the same time loosening the linkage that bound the steering oars together. Then they hoisted the fort sail to the wind and steered towards the beach. But they encountered a patch of cross currents that ran the ship aground, and the bow struck fast, the bow struck fast and could not be moved. But the stern was being broken up by the force of the waves. Now the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would escape by swimming away. Most likely what's happening here is they realize like we have a lot of prisoners, we're in the middle of a storm. We're going aground. Things are busting up. Everybody is every man for himself. There's no way I'm going to try to swim in the middle of the storm and be handcuffed or holding on to or whatever it is, this prisoner, to try to make sure he doesn't get away. And we all know that anybody who loses a prisoner is going to be executed and killed. And the likelihood of losing a prisoner right now is very likely. I mean, even if he drowns, I can't prove that he didn't get away. And if I am fighting for my life and the currents are carrying us in different ways, he could be in the way down there and there's no way I can get along waterlogged and beaten down and that kind of stuff. So it's better just to just kill them now. Now, there could be a chance that they're only thinking about killing the people who definitely have a death sentence 
Um, but at the same time, they're, Julius thinks that they're going about ready to kill Paul, and he doesn't have a death sentence on him. So it could be just like, it's better just to kill them all, we can swim ashore, and we don't have to face Rome in any kind of a way for letting prisoners go and escape. Better my life than their life. But the centurion wanting to save Paul's life, which means he's come to a great respect for him, or he knows Paul's trial well enough to know that he's a Roman citizen and he's not guilty of anything. We don't know which one it is. Prevented them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest were to follow on the planks and some on pieces of the ship. And in this way, they were brought safely to land. So yes, they're on planks. But remember, this is a controlled crash. They're intentionally steering it. They can see the land. They got oars. They're crashing it into the, they're running into ground. They can see where they're going. The planks are most likely just to help them not drown in the middle of the storm. Or they're not good swimmers. And so they make it to land. And they're going to find out that this is Malta. And basically, God has fulfilled his prophecy. And this is going to be a huge testament to Paul's credentials in sharing the gospel on Malta. Because he has done. The likelihood of that many people surviving a shipwreck in that kind of a storm where even professional sailors are losing hope of surviving is definitely Yahweh. This is definitely Yahweh. So at this point, every Gentile and every Greek reading this realizes even the gods have vindicated Paul. Even the gods know that Paul has something valid to say. Which is so ironic because the gods are really demons who are really doing everything they can to destroy the gospel. Yet God has used this against them in order to promote the gospel because everything in creation belongs to God and can be used by him in any way to serve his purposes to bring the world back to the Garden of Eden. And that's the implication here. <clears throat> 